The big story of the Bible is the good news that God is calling out a people for His name, rescuing them from sin and from death. And the hero of that story is Jesus. So when we pray, show us Christ, we are asking for God to use the Word of God in our hearts the way it was intended, and that is to draw us to the Savior who will connect us to God the Father. When we talk about praying, that's exactly what we're striving to do. We're trying to connect with God. We're trying to bring God into our world to do what only God can do. If you uh, join as a member here, and you members know this, you uh, have a prayer directory. It's not, it's not a church membership catalog, although it does have pictures of the members and their names and contact information, but it's called a prayer directory. And the reason it's called a prayer directory, because its purpose is not just to be a reference tool, it is useful for that, but but a tool that will prompt us to pray for one another. And that sounds easy enough. I don't know how many of you try to use this to pray, but maybe you face some of what I face. I'll usually try to do, as it's suggested in the front, you know, a couple pages, and I'll look at the faces there, and I've, I've been here long enough and gotten to meet enough people that usually... I'd say 99% of the people here I, I know, often know their life situation, whatever, and I'll, I'll look down through and I'll remember different things about them, and, and yet I, I have to confess that I feel like, okay, I'm not sure that I've prayed yet. You know, what, what am I supposed to do when I'm praying for these brothers and sisters? It's often a struggle for us, and In fact, the Apostle Paul himself says in Romans 8 that we don't know what to pray for as we ought, that the Holy Spirit uh, helps us and actually interprets our prayers. In other words, our heart for what we're trying to get across, because we can't always get it into the right words, and interprets that prayer so that it's consistent with the will of God for us. And so, praying is, is difficult work. And you remember that Christ's disciples would say to him, Lord, teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples. And he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really the Lord taught it, but it was for the disciples. He gave them a, a basic template for praying for ourselves before God. But even in that prayer, the question is, okay, so that's praying for myself, but how do I really pray for others? And, and often I'll hear myself saying to somebody, how can I pray for you? And usually what we're asking is, what are the prayer requests that you have? What are the things that are on your heart that are burdening you? How can I pray for you? And occasionally I'm going to get a text from somebody praying for you. But all of this begs the question of how are we supposed to pray for one another? Now, there's one other There's a lot of features to the prayer directory, but just inside the front cover, um, Brother Ben has actually laid this out, I believe, and um, you have a number of passages that are praying, are intercessory prayers for other people, and one of the passages is the passage we're going to look at this morning. 
So you could hardly choose a more practical text for us this morning about something that we know we're supposed to do, but we often find ourselves struggling to know how to do it, praying for you. And, and here is my prayer for you and for me, is that as we track through this this morning, that, that it'll help guide us in our prayer life to where we're really praying prayers in line with the will of God as revealed by the Spirit of God through His Word, praying for one another in a way that God would have us pray and mirroring the way that the Apostle Paul prayed for the believers in Thessalonica. So our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13, if you'll follow with me as I read. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So, as we pray for one another, what should that include? Well, first in verse 9, praying for you would include giving thanks to God for the joy that you bring giving thanks to God for the joy that you bring. And this joy was rooted in the fact that God was at work in the lives of these believers in Thessalonica. And so one of the things is we talk to God on behalf of one another, we want to be thanking God for the joy that others bring to us. Second, in verses 10 and 11, we want to be praying. Paul prays that we can see you and serve you. So he's praying for that that in-person connection with these believers so that he can minister to them in a way that would build them up. And we need to pray the same kind of thing. In verse 12, we need to be praying that you, the one we're praying for, will increase and abound in love. And then finally, in verse 13, we are praying that God will establish your hearts blameless. As you look at those things, those, those requests are tied to the saving work of Jesus Christ. They're, they're tied to God at work in people in ways that, that human beings can't achieve on their own. It's more than just, and it's legitimate to pray. Jesus taught, you know, pray for your daily bread. Pray for not being led into temptation. There's a variety of things that we can pray. These are prayers that are, that are connected to what God is doing in the earth and connected to the fact that we as his people are laboring alongside of God to achieve what he's doing in the earth. So first, note that, that the kind of prayer that Paul is praying here begins with giving thanks to God for the joy you bring. Look at the way he puts it in verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? 
When Paul heard from Timothy that the believers in Thessalonica were, were thriving despite the afflictions and temptations they faced, he could hardly contain his joy. His, his happy relief caused him to overflow with thanksgiving to God. And the reason for that is that only the power of God could produce such steadfast faith in the face of, of such pressure. You would expect that they would have caved. And so it only makes sense that Paul's prayer for these brothers and sisters in Christ would include praise and thanksgiving. They are holding fast, not, not because they're such great people. They are holding fast because God's a great God, and He is at work among them. And the, the way Paul states it here suggests that, that the reasons for gratitude for what God is doing in their lives outstrips whatever expression of thanks he can render. In other words, if he's, he's thanking God, he's praising God, and when he finishes, there's still more to thank God for. There's still more to praise God for. It's a gratitude without limits because it's an infinite God doing miraculous things in the lives of people. When you and I pray for one another, we would do well to start with praising God and thanking Him for what we see Him doing in the lives of those for whom we pray. Now, that assumes that you're paying attention to what He's doing. That assumes that you've got enough connection with people that you actually see how they're being transformed by the Spirit of God. But when we start our prayer with this kind of thanksgiving and adoration to God, what it does is it aligns our heart attitude with our brothers and sisters um, in relation to their, their most important connection that they have, and that is their connection to God. It also, it, it also blows through the boundaries of what is possible in their life because we're reminding ourselves that God has already done miraculous things in them, that God is already at work in them, and and as we pray for them, we're praying for God to do more, and He's already proven that He's willing to do it. He's already proven that He's capable of doing it. And we're going to latch on to that. We're going we're gonna, gonna to hook into that and let it pull us way beyond what we would normally pray, things that are more at an earthbound level. We're, we're going to pray beyond the bounds for them. So as we think about praying this way, and as you prepare your own heart for praying this way, let's ask ourselves these kinds of questions. What handiwork of God do you see in the lives of your Christian brothers and sisters? Now, the fact is, it's way easier for us to see their flaws, right? I mean, that kind of sticks out, the proverbial fly in the ointment. But, but focus on what... What do you see God doing? For instance, how are they showing steadfast faith despite trials and sufferings that they're going through? Have you ever been amazed at somebody who's going through this horrendous trial and you're going like, how do you even hang in there? How do you, how do you keep your joy? How do you keep clinging to God when, with all that's happened in your life? Well, it's not that that person is so strong. It's that God is so good and that, that God is working them in, in them in a way. You know, I've seen a lot of brothers and sisters on their deathbed, and, you know, God has to get you ready for that. And, and I've watched them just 
like vibrating, as it were, with joy, hardly could wait to see Jesus. And it was a testimony to me of their faith and, and also a reminder. I mean, I'm praying that, that when my time comes, however it comes, if I'm on a deathbed like that, that God will give me that kind of grace where I, I'm not just putting on a front, but where I'm really like I can hardly wait to see Jesus. Because right now, you know, I feel like there's a lot more I want to do and, and we cling to life and, and it's not that easy to let go of it. So I want God to work in me in a way that, that it would show that kind of faith. In what ways are they growing in faith and love? You know, one of the benefits of actually knowing people over the course of a number of years is you get to see them grow in grace. What are you seeing? You know, parents, what are you seeing in your children who have professed Christ? How are you seeing them grow? Um, and that could be turned around kids, how are you seeing your parents grow? How are you seeing your brothers and sisters in Christ grow in faith and love? And in what ways have they brought benefit or joy to you? Now, think about the people in your life. Think about the people who have contributed the most to you, people who have made the biggest difference in your life. That that should bring from you thanksgiving to God. That should make it easy to, to praise God. God, thank you for, for this person who has poured himself or herself into me, who has reached out, who has helped. And then as you, as you make these observations, take what you observe and bring it to God with thanksgiving. It, it really is like the preamble to whatever you're going to ask from him. It, it prepares the soil of your heart. It gets you on the right plane in terms of praying for other people. And then in verses 10 through 11, Paul is praying. Of course, I'm using first person plural, praying we can see you and serve you. Verse 10 and 11. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So Paul's heart is to see these brothers and sisters face to face in order to contribute to their further growth in the Lord, to supply what is lacking. That word has really got a wide range of uses. It's used of restoring and equipping and, and repairing, like a doctor setting bones or, or fishermen repairing their fishing nets or or soldiers making military plans. The same word is used in Ephesians 4.12 for what those who teach in the church are supposed to be doing with all the saints, and that is equipping the saints for the work of ministry, making them functional for the work of ministering to one another. And Paul is thinking about his relationship to these believers in that way. I want to I help equip you. I want to help mend what needs to be mended uh, set what broken bones need to be set so that you're stronger and, and more able to serve others and to serve Jesus. He gives instruction later in this letter regarding uh, some of the struggles that they are evidently facing in their walk with God, like staying pure in the middle of a sexually immoral culture or keeping their focus on practical service versus idle speculation about the Lord's return. Um, the Lord is returning, but, but wasting your time debating 
speculative theology instead of actually doing stuff that matters for people is, is wasting your life, okay? Rejoicing always, praying constantly, giving thanks no matter what happens, not holding grudges. These are the practical kinds of things that Paul is going to give them instruction on, and that this prayer here actually reflects. Here, here are some things that are lacking. Here are some areas that you need to be stronger. And his prayers for them are earnest. They're, they're literally overflowing the bounds. It's like a, a, a river overflowing the bank. Super abundantly are his prayers, and they're constant, night and day. Now, why would that be? Well, because these kinds of needs crop up at any time in the lives of believers. And, you know, whenever Paul thinks of them, he knows that there are these kinds of needs, and he's going to be praying whatever time of day or night. It's always a good time to intercede for our brothers and sisters. Years ago, we had some dear friends that were part of our church. He had, he had been an 18-year-old soldier on the day of Pearl Harbor was bombed. And he was, I think, as I recall, like, I think he and one other guy were the only two survivors in his particular hangar. He didn't even make it into the bomb shelter. And he was 18 years old. He was unconverted. And the Lord spared him um, by about an inch. He had a piece of shrapnel in his neck that just barely missed his carotid artery. So, so Fred was his name. Um, and, and he went on to continue in the military. And one day he was in training away from home. And someone was sharing the gospel with him, and he was converted. Um, he had been a tough, cursing, drinking sailor. I mean, just, you know, your quintessential guy like that. And um, God converted him. So he sent a letter to his wife to tell him about his coming to Christ. And her letter to him passed in the mail. Because she had had a friend that had invited her to a Bible study and she had been converted. Well, they ended up spending some time in, in Vietnam as missionaries, and over time in their, their elderly years, they were part of our church. Well, Fred had some injuries that dated all the way back to when he was 18 that made, him really di made it difficult for him to sleep at night. I think he had to have his neck bones fused and that kind of thing. So he would, he would sleep in a recliner. He couldn't really sleep in a bed. And he typically would wake up uh, every night around 2 a.m. Well, he used that time to pray. And they were prayer warriors. It was almost like when they first walked into the church and became part of it, it was like the, the spiritual temperature just rose. Because they were, they were genuine prayer warriors and I knew while they were in the church, and even long after when we moved from there, I knew that, that, that they would pray for us. And it was such a valuable gift. Well, Paul's love for the Thessalonian believers and his desire to serve their needs makes him want to be with them in person. But, but there had been significant obstacles to his doing so. In fact, Satan himself was hindering him. So, so Paul prays that God will make a way according to his will for Paul to reconnect. 
So here's, here's the application. As you pray for others, pray about your role in their lives. In what ways could you further their growth in grace? And pray for God to open opportunities for you to serve them in those ways. Like, have you ever thought, well, you know, I know there's needs out there, but I don't know exactly where they are, and I don't know how I would connect with this person. Well, that's something to pray about. God, open the opportunities. God, help me meet the needs, and then give me opportunity to actually connect with these persons. When you're praying for such open doors, you're far more likely to see the opportunities when they do come and to use them well. The fact is that God may assign someone else to meet the needs that you see. And as best we know, Paul never got to go back to Thessalonica. But, but you can be sure that God did not forsake his people there. And even though Paul could not be with them to serve them at this time, his prayers could still impact their lives. Because he's talking to the God who's everywhere at once and who has every tool at his disposal to accomplish what needs to be done. The fact is, God uses people whose eyes are open and whose hands are ready because their hearts are tuned to the needs of others through their prayer for them. I I am certain that if you and I gave ourselves more to praying this way for one another, we would find more opportunities, we would have more opportunities to actually impact one another and to impact others for Jesus. And you'll notice that that Paul prays for both God the Father and the Lord Jesus to direct his way to the Thessalonians. Both persons of the Godhead, along with the Holy Spirit, have already demonstrated their love for human beings and their power over all the circumstances of life. So the Lord, over all the course of history, including my own, is a redeeming God. And He's at work for the good of His redeemed people. So when I pray this way, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm connecting to God at work in the lives of other people. I'm saying, God, help me be at work in their lives as well and bring those opportunities. Third way we want to be praying for one another, praying that you will increase and abound in love. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So the primary area that Paul prays for is growth in their love. He prays that it will increase and overflow. Why does he pray this way? Well, love is the hallmark of truly born-again people. It expresses the heart of God. It's strongly attractive, and it's therefore crucial to gospel witness as well as to building up other believers. I mean, the Apostle John has made the case, if you don't love your brother, then you don't love God, and God's love is not in you, okay? So it makes sense that you're praying for this love that's already there for that love to increase and to overflow. Paul prays for the love to grow for one another. Within the church family, there's always room for love to grow more. Every new need creates a fresh opportunity for us to benefit others, to strengthen our love for them by exercising, to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. 
This is a frequent prayer request of Paul for believers he knows. For instance, in Philippians 1, he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound, may overflow more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. In other words, as you're making decisions about what to do in life, approve the things that actually matter. It's not talking about being excellent in your workplace. That's ripping it out of context. It's talking about doing something that excels. It excels because it's consistent with discernment and knowledge and love. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, using your life well, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When people show love this way, it brings God glory because it looks like God. It, it, it effectively communicates what God is actually like. So Paul prays that in a similar way that God will fill the Ephesian Christians as they experience the love of Christ in every dimension. That's in Ephesians 3, and he talks like he's talking about a building being filled up with the love of Christ. And Paul prays not just for their love for one another, but for their love for all. Love for our neighbor doesn't stop with church membership. We love people because God loves people. Human beings are made in His image, and as such, they deserve love and respect. And as we practice love toward those within the church family, we actually learn how to show love to other people. If we get into the life pattern of living this way, it doesn't stop when we're engaging those who aren't believers yet. I mean, people are people, okay? And there are differences among people, but look, if you learn to love your brothers and sisters with all the changes, all the warts and idiosyncrasies that are within the body of Christ, then you'll be okay stepping out of the bounds of just people that already know God, because you're still going to love people that are human beings who also have idiosyncrasies and have hang-ups and difficulties, and, and you just use the same kind of behavior toward them, the same kind of heart toward them. Fact is, we don't know. We don't know who among our unbelieving friends will one day trust in Jesus and become members of our forever family. So it makes sense to be on mission always, wherever we are and with whomever we meet. And if we're not practicing showing love to those who are close to us in the church family, how do we expect to show love to those who are not close to us? I mean, this is like a training ground for us. This is a, a way for us to practice until it really becomes part of our muscle memories, part of our soul memory, where this is the way we treat people. So as we move through our days, where do we see human need that we can sacrifice ourselves to meet? And how can we effectively express our interest in other people and show them that we care for them in the same way that Jesus does? This is a way to pray for people, but pray about our relationship to them that we can show good to them. Now, Paul is not just telling the Thessalonian believers to do this. He and his companions model this kind of living themselves. You notice the words, as we do for you. Okay, So, they're, they're not praying for something in the lives of Thessalonian believers that, that they wouldn't pray for themselves and they wouldn't practice themselves. 
In Paul's letters to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, Paul asks his fellow believers to pray for him, to have open doors to share the gospel, and those doors are open to make the gospel clear. You know, when he was writing the book of uh, the letter to the Ephesians of Colossians, he was under house arrest at Rome, and, and the Lord used even that to advance the gospel and the lives of those around him. According to Philippians 1.12, the things that happened to me, he said, have happened to the furtherance of the gospel. It didn't shut it down. Well, why? In part, because people were praying for him to be able, be able to love people well and to love them well by sharing the gospel. And then finally, in verse 13, we want to be praying that God will establish your hearts blameless so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This tells me right at the get-go that the, the Christian battle is not just surface, it's at the level of heart desire. God alone knows our hearts, and God alone can fix what's wrong there. Establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God. Paul prays that, that God will make their hearts firmly established, firmly committed to holiness. A, a holiness that's not just for show, for that is a holiness that is as deep as, as God sees, and hence blameless. A kind of holiness, that kind of holiness, versus just external show, that comes by the power of the Spirit of God who indwells us. And so Paul is praying for it. It shows his dependence on God to bring it about in our lives. Our spiritual disciplines are important, but the only reason they work at all is through reliance on the power of the Spirit of God. Paul puts it this way to the Galatians, who are kind of enamored with the rules, trying to make it that way. He says, I say, walk in the Spirit, walk about, live your walk about life in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, he prays that God, our Father, before our God and Father, that he will establish our hearts. God is our Father, and so his holy character should be growing in our hearts because of who we are in him. We've been born again. He cares that his children show his character for what it really is. I mean, think about it. How much shame and dishonor has been directed against God because of the scandalous lives of those who claim to belong to him. And the tragedy is not just that our secret sins become known, but that we would leave them unchallenged in our lives and still claim to belong to God. Cleansing and deliverance is available to us if we would come to Christ with confession and repentance. Paul is praying for holiness before the Lord, not just the appearance of it. Each one of us who have been born again must continually engage in the spiritual battle of guarding our hearts before God. And he's praying this for fellow believers. I mean, think about how important this is because... You can't see the heart of your brother or your sister. You really don't have anything. You have a clue. You know kind of universally what people wrestle with. You might know a brother or sister well enough to know some specifics of what they're wrestling with. But as far as the turning of their heart, only God actually knows that. In fact, sometimes we don't know that for ourselves. And so you're praying to God to work at that heart level in a way that human beings can't. You can't change another person's heart. Only God can do that. 
Paul prays in Romans 8, so then brothers, he explains, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. This is This prayer request is rooted in these people actually being born again. They actually have the life of the Spirit so that it's possible for them to have holy lives. They belong to God, making them holy so their lives can change. In Colossians 1, he prays similarly. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom, that skillful living and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In other words, what he's praying for is just not even, you know, it's pie in the sky if you're talking about just human ability. But it's actually possible when we're talking about God's ability. And that's why we pray it. And there's further motivation in in that the Lord Jesus will return soon. He says, we're praying that you'll be blameless this way at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We don't know the day or hour, but we do know that we're accountable to him. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then these words, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you're not bogged down into just the here and now, but you're looking toward victory day, when Christ comes back, you're looking toward the consummation of the age, you realize that all of history is rushing toward this God-determined goal, then you say, look, I want to be in line with that. I want to live my life that way. The coming of the Lord refers to His presence. And you recall in earlier Sunday, we learned that in ancient times, this word often refers to the visit of a royal official. Well, Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He's the head of the body, His church. He, he walks among His churches observing the good and the bad, according to Revelation 1 through 3. And it is to Him that we answer our earthly lives. The Puritans called this Christ-aware living, practicing the presence of God, practicing the coming of Jesus, if you will. It's the key to holy living because we can't deliberately sin without shoving awareness of God's presence and watch care out of our minds. I mean, we're going to sin by accident, but the deliberate sins, the deliberate yielding to temptation, I, you can't do that while you're holding a sense of God's presence and will for you in your mind. This sensitivity to the presence and power of Christ in our lives is crucial to holy living. And I think sometimes we just forget just how powerful Christ is, and I'm grateful for the songs that we sang Uh, this morning and what the choir is saying that really reminds us of what Christ is doing. And this just lifts, raises the bar about what we expect. In Ephesians 1, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what's the hope to which He's called you. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? 
And so we're talking about that future. But then what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, we're talking about infinite power. We're talking about, we're talking about resurrection power to change who we are. Jesus is coming with all his saints. Their chief identity is that they belong to him. They they are the cloud of witnesses to which Hebrews 12 refers, those who have testified to the reliability of God and the way they live by faith. They were convinced of his existence and they lived for his reward. His pleasure was their delight and their reason for living. So our sense of accountability to our Lord and a belonging to all the saints of his kingdom strengthens our resolve to live holy lives from the inside out. Look, you are connected with every other saint that belongs to Jesus. That has impact on how you live. You, You have been born again, and you've been given an inheritance in Jesus. You belong to the king of kings. You're a citizen of that kingdom, and so, so your heart is to live that way. Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this morning, what what is the actual state of your heart before God? Not just your outward reputation. What's the state of your heart? Are you yielding to the Holy Spirit's work in you to empower you to fight the battles against the flesh? And in what ways does your conviction that the Lord Jesus is coming soon shape your sense of accountability to him not just in your public living, but in your private life. I'd like you today, and even in this moment, consider consider your list of family and friends for whom you pray. In particular, those that you know are born-again brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, pray for them this way. Give thanks to God for the joy that they bring. Pray that you can see them and and serve them. Pray that, that they will increase and abound in love. And pray that God will establish their hearts blameless. Think about what I'm praying for you could mean if you pray this way. Let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray you would use it in our lives, help us, Lord, to inculcate this kind of focus to our praying. For God, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we all need it. We need brothers and sisters praying for us this way, that we might thrive in a hostile world, that our faith might endure even though it's under fire, to your glory and to your praise.